The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran hello everybody and welcome indeed to main street vegan the spirited and spiritual vegan podcast i'm your host victoria moran now we're in a still new year excited about beginnings, and in addition, we need some endings. So after the break, we're going to be talking with business consultant Patricia Meriday about how to end vegan backsliding. And in our first segment, we're honored to be joined from the UK by Dr. Jared Bailey, who agrees with most of us that we need to end animal experimentation And he has the science to back him up. Dr. Bailey is the Director of Science and Technology for the Center for Contemporary Sciences, which seeks to improve human health by accelerating the transition of medical research to human-specific methods. A fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics and with a background in genetics, he has spent the last 15 years evaluating the human relevance of animal experiments in many areas of biomedical research and testing and promoting the use of human-specific methods in their place. Welcome, Dr. Bailey. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for inviting me and, um, and thank you for such a lovely introduction. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm always fascinated to get to look kind of behind the veil. You know, all the professions <laughs> have, have knowledge that it's, it's sometimes hard for lay people to get in on. And when someone like yourself comes on the show and can kind of pull that veil back a little bit and tell us what's going on, it is absolutely fascinating. So let's get a little background first on, on you. So what started you down this particular path? Well, um, as you say, my background was in genetics, my my degree, and then my PhD was in viral genetics, which has become a bit of a hot topic, um, as you might expect recently with uh, with the coronavirus. So I'm, I'm fielding a lot of questions from people I know about that uh, at the minute. 
Um, I then spent seven years as a senior research associate at Newcastle University researching premature birth. And if there was a, a genetic uh, factor to why so many women around the world every year have premature babies. Um, and that's something that, that is important because it has lifelong consequences um, for many of those children. Um, something that was important to me too, because I was very premature, so was my brother. Um, and uh, eventually, so was my daughter, actually, born a couple of months early. Um, and it was during that time that I got an interest in the science behind why people, why some people used animals. I didn't. I used um, human tissue and uh, grew human cells in the lab um, to, to do my research. But some researchers used animals and um, got different results. And that intrigued me because I'd always been ethically opposed to animal experiments. And I very quickly learned that there was a scientifically based opposition to it as well. It just wasn't very good human relevant science. So that led to me um, spending the last 15 to 16 years uh, after I left the lab and academic research, um, working for groups on both sides of the Atlantic, um, doing just that researching uh, animal models, uh, animal use in many, many different areas of science, genetically modified animals, the testing of drugs on animals. Uh, the use of chimpanzees in the United States, particularly in uh, research into, into HIV AIDS, hepatitis C, the use of monkeys uh, in, in neuroscience research, which uh, involves an awful lot of suffering and, and opening up their, their brains and so on, um, all, all sorts of different things. Uh, and invariably, I uh, was uncovering the scientific basis behind the opposition to animal research, that uh, you can't do experiments in one species and reliably apply what you find to any other species. And so we weren't just letting animals down and around 200 million animals a year are used in scientific research, but we're letting people down as well because we're not doing the best science. And moreover, we can be doing much, much better science using uh, human specific methods, some of which um, I could only have dreamed of 15, 20, 25 years ago when I was a, a young man uh, in, in the lab. So um, I think, uh, you know, that that's what the Centre for Contemporary Sciences stands for. We need, as a matter of urgency, to, to expedite, to accelerate this sea change in science away from using uh, rats and mice and dogs and monkeys and everything else and towards focusing on human biology from start to finish. Because when we do that, we won't just be doing good for hundreds of millions of animals. We'll be doing good for the, the 7 billion or so people uh, who inhabit this planet who are relying on science to do better, to understand the diseases that they suffer from or that they're scared of suffering from. And finally, um, realizing and developing safe and effective um, cures and treatments for, for many, many different diseases. Well, it's it, understandable to me why scientists back in the 19th century would have poo-pooed anti-vivisectionists like Victor Hugo and said, you know, you're just being sentimental. We need to do this work. This is the only way we can understand. But as you said, we now have all these incredible and better ways to understand. And yet it seems like the scientific community largely is treating this kind of work the way they used to treat the old anti-vivisectionists. Why aren't they keeping up? 
I think uh, that's a really brilliant question, and it, and it opens up lots of uh, lots of cans of worms. Actually, first of all, yes, I think if we put ethics, uh, animal ethics, to one side, we can understand why somebody could argue many years ago uh, that if you take an animal that has two eyes and a brain and a heart and two lungs and limbs and so on, uh, there will be biological similarities and and we can uh, extrapolate something we find experimenting on those animals uh, to to people and maybe get to the root of diseases and, and find some cures and treatments for them. The problem is that the evidence doesn't underpin that, that uh, the more we know about animal biology and human biology, the more we realize they are different. And I've, I've, you know, some of the papers I've published as a geneticist have been on that, have been on the genetic differences between species. Um, and that's that, you know, therein lies the differences between species. So we may share a lot of genes with monkeys and dogs uh, and even mice. For example, we, you know, it's in the 90, 90 something percent of genes we share with with macaque monkeys. The problem is that the seven or so percent of genes we don't share really matter. They're associated with very important fundamental biological processes and with some diseases. And moreover, the 93 percent of genes we do share are expressed differently. And, and a good analogy to, to illustrate that is, and this is important, by the way, this is linked to, to very, very different fun biological functions and diseases and so on. And the best way to illustrate that is to say that, you know, many, many different alphabets and languages around the world share many letters, but, um, but we can't speak all sorts of different languages. The, the way you put those letters together can make, um, you know, a, a telephone directory or the works of Shakespeare or a modern comedy or, or, and so on. So those subtle differences really, really matter. So we don't just know that animals have been a failure in so many areas of biomedical research empirically from just looking at the evidence. We now know why they can only ever be a failure because of those important genetic differences that exist um, between species. So that leads us to, you know, if we know that animal models have failed in so many areas, if we know why, because of the genetic differences, then why every year are around 200 million animals of many, many different kinds, including cats, dogs, monkeys, why are they still used in awful scientific experiments around the world every year? Uh, and the, the reasons really are, are simple and they can be, uh, you know, they can be put down to human nature and they can be seen in, in any area of life. People get uh, individually locked into a way of doing things. Uh, the institutions in which they work get locked in into ways of doing things. Um, there's hubris. People become, you, you know, um, proud of, of, of what they do and don't like to be told that they're wrong and that they, they should change. Uh, people's reputations are built on this. There's an awful lot of money in this. Millions upon millions of, of dollars, of pounds, of euro um, every year. Uh, are available in funding for animal research. So th there's an awful lot of reasons, none of which are scientific. And I think that's the important point. There are, There is very little, if any, scientific evidence saying that we must carry on experimenting on animals. Otherwise, we have no hope of understanding and treating and curing human disease. In fact, the opposite is the case. Unless we move as a matter of urgency 
towards these amazing human-focused, human-specific methods that, that are available to science, we will continue to flounder and continue to go down, down dead ends and blind alleys and fail the people who are, who are looking to science for those breakthroughs. So you have done some research very recently that was published in BMJ, British Medical Journal, Open Science. So tell us about that. Yes, thank you. I was uh, there, there was a lot of work went into that paper, and I was I was very pleased to see it published in a, a, a nice, uh, prestigious journal because it, its its findings are important. So, you know, we the, the evidence is out there. If you look, that animal research is misleading, and we really need to move away from it, both ethically, uh, from uh, you know, animal ethics, human ethics, and scientifically um, too. But constantly what's coming back at us from, from people who want to defend animal research for, for one reason or another um, are stories of breakthroughs. We've made a breakthrough uh, in this mouse model of, of Alzheimer's. We've made a breakthrough uh, in this monkey model of, of, neurodegenerative, uh, of a neurodegenerative disease. Or we've made a breakthrough in finding a drug for, for, for this or that or the other in an animal. Um, we see it all the time. So um, it occurred to me that this was something that, that needed to be looked at. So uh, I used a database to look at animal-based breakthroughs, specifically animal-based breakthroughs, a new drug, uh, a gene associated with a disease uh, that we could you know, follow up quite easily, that had been reported in the UK national press in 1995. And we went back that far to give plenty of time for those breakthroughs to come to fruition and to result in, in human benefit. Uh, and there were 27 different breakthroughs, and those breakthroughs involved uh, HIV-AIDS vaccines, malaria vaccines, Alzheimer's disease models, uh, a treatment for multiple sclerosis, for deafness, um, lots of different types of cancer, treatments and, uh, for obesity, for pain, for, for aging, for um, or growing organs for transplant in pigs, all sorts of, of really very different breakthroughs. And we followed them up to see if anything, if any human benefit had come from those 27 different medical breakthroughs reported in the UK uh, national press. Uh, and we found that only one had resulted in human benefit more than 20 years later. And that was a type of bone, injectable bone cement to fix uh, broken bones. And even that was with some some major caveats with its use. So that told us. Uh, that really underlined what evidence was already pointing towards that animal research is so uh, shows so much lack of relevance to humans. It very rarely translates to to human biology and to human benefit. But there was also another another really major finding, which was that um, every single one of those breakthroughs had been greatly exaggerated in the in the in the articles in the newspaper articles that people were reading. And that's really worrying because when people who are, you know, as I've said, are relying on good science to uh, to help them and their families and their loved ones, they're going to to believe it when a scientist says we're really excited about this breakthrough in uh, in mice or dogs or monkeys. We think that in two years, three years, maybe five years maximum, this will be one of the most important drugs around the world treating cancer. Or um, we are convinced that in two years this new treatment will be in clinical trials and we'll have a cure uh, for Alzheimer's. When people are reading those things, they, they're inclined to believe them because they want to believe them, but it, it's misleading 
and it you know those treatments weren't panning out to human success so really the the take-homes were look when you read these things take them with a pinch of salt firstly because we know that animal research very rarely applies to humans and very rarely benefit humans uh, and secondly the exaggeration is absolutely rife there you know the the scientists are really talking up their own research over egging the pudding exaggerating things and you really need uh, to take these things with a pinch of salt otherwise you'll be you'll be um uh, sorely disappointed and finally it really points towards going back to to what the center for contemporary sciences stands for which is the way to get translation from research you know from bench to bedside to human benefit um, is to focus on human biology from start to finish and uh, that's really what we need to do as a matter of urgency and what we're trying our best to to achieve so is this unknown by other scientists it just seems that they must be caught up in some kind of wishful thinking they do this work and they know the track record, how many of these studies have been done that had so much promise and then sort of fell to the wayside. So how, how talk us through their thinking a little bit. You've just done this work and you did animal experimentation and you're very excited. Are you really excited? I mean, do <laughs> they really think that these breakthroughs are going to happen. I mean, I think just as a lay person having lived a while, I mean, I've heard of thousands of breakthroughs. There shouldn't be any disease left on the planet, but sadly yeah. there is. Yeah, I think uh, undoubtedly some do. I think undoubtedly some uh, have some reservations and answer sure. I think some uh, realize that what they're doing has very little uh, chance of human benefit, but they carry on doing it anyway because it's how they earn their living. It's 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 what underpins their reputation. It's what they do. It's what they know. And we see that in, you know, in, in many, many areas of, of human endeavor. People don't like to be told that they, they're wrong and that they've wasted their time. That said, um, and, you know, there is still a lot of resistance from those who uh who do animal research and who don't want to be wrong uh, and those who make a lot of money from animal research in, in terms of salary and grants and what have you but there is um a lot of um a lot of reason to be to be hopeful and optimistic and that is that um 15 or so years ago when i i started looking into animal research broadly and and doing this work and, and publishing my my work um you were you were seen as a bit of a maverick if you if you would put your head above the parapet and oppose animal experiments that's really not the case anymore it's much much more mainstream um, than it ever used to be and you can see that uh, in the press uh, on websites you can see that in the scientific literature itself so many more scientists who are um, not necessarily working for an end to animal research or or to to try and achieve a transition towards human specific um, research, but scientists involved in, for example, cancer research or, or um, neurodegenerative disease research or asthma research or kidney research or anything. So many more scientists are prepared to say at least something along the lines of animal research um, often isn't predictive of human biology. They, they are more prepared than ever before to put those caveats in their work. And I think uh, I think that's that's really important because it shows that um, really for the first time they're prepared to accept um, 
you know, what we've been saying all along, that you cannot extrapolate reliably uh, from one species to another. And in addition, we're seeing um, real collaborations of, of academic researchers and groups and institutions, of biotech companies, of people who uh, see the need to shift science away from animal use and towards human-specific research, to, to really put their heads together and work to try and do this, to, to work collaboratively, to uh, participate in workshops and working groups to try and accelerate this shift that, that really, really needs to happen. So the fact that this is, is now becoming more mainstream and more accepted and that more and more people are working hard to achieve this transition uh, is, I think, um, you know, real cause for, for, for optimism. And um, it's still going to take some time um, because things just do take time, especially huge changes like this. But it's our job. Um, to, you know, mine and my colleagues to try and make this change happen as quickly as it possibly can, because everybody, everybody will benefit from that. And what we don't want to do uh, in 20 years time is say, well, you know, we got there, but we really should have done this in five or six years, not 20. I, I think that would be terrible. So uh, so it's it's really important that this, uh, you know, that we, we do what we're doing and we try and accelerate this change. Mm. So I did. You mentioned the word grants. And I wanted to know if there was, when you were doing your initial research, or, or if there is now, any prejudice in the funding process where somebody using animals or perhaps not using animals gets a little bit of a step ahead on the funding. <laughs> I think it's, it, it, you know, the figures are there for anybody to see that those who uh, use animals um, get much, much more funding than those who don't use animals. That, that, that's a simple fact. Um, we also know, and um, uh, Donald Ingber of uh, the famous Wies Institute uh, up in um, Boston, uh, I believe, um, he said he said so recently that we really need to move away from from this, uh, you know, from from this mindset where you show some beautiful research, human specific research that you know involves real breakthroughs and new information that's that's really exciting. And somebody will turn around and say, can you please validate your finding in a rat or a mouse? We really need to move away from that because that is still happening. There are still too many scientists who are too comfortable with that animal data. And that really, really needs to change. And we see that in, in regulatory bodies such as the FDA who, who approve uh, new drugs. They want to see animal data. That's what they're comfortable with. And um uh, you know, we, we need to change that. There is, thankfully, and again, more cause for optimism, the FDA um, are, have started working with with one of the the amazing uh, human-based breakthroughs, which is, we can talk about in a little bit, is, is organ on a chip and, and body on a chip. It's something the size of uh, of like a memory stick or a, a small a small um, cell phone where you grow hu mini human organs on this this tiny chip and you can grow more than one type of organ and have a, a kind of circulatory system with artificial blood circulating between uh, a mini human liver and a kidney and a heart and a brain and, and lungs and, and so on and so forth. So the FDA are now using those. They're using lung uh, and airway chips in um, coronavirus and, and COVID-19 research for the first time ever the FDA have said they will seriously start to to look at and accept data from these human specific 
research methods instead of, uh, you know, just demanding that they get um, data from some mouse testing and some dog or some monkey testing. So change, as I said, is happening. It's just not happening uh, as quickly as the evidence demands it should mm. be happening. So yes. so it really needs yeah. to be pushed. But there, there is there is real cause for optimism. And and you mentioned the coronavirus. So why is this work that you're doing so important right now in the middle of, of a global pandemic? Well, yeah, there's a there's a few answers to that. I think uh, you know I think I'm not being pessimistic or, or cynical when I say this, but I think I'm I'm really concerned that uh, COVID nineteen has been a little a little warning and a warm up in terms of global pandemics because um you know speaking as as someone whose background is in uh, genetics and virus genetics um i know that uh these types of viruses in particular viruses with with rna uh, as their genetic material instead of dna they mutate um relatively quickly and um that, you know what what they don't need is intensive animal agriculture to give them the kind of bioreactors they need to mutate even more quickly than they they, they do in any case so we're just kind of uh, we, you know we've already seen um the uh covid-19 virus the, the virus that causes covid-19 we've already seen that mutate a number of times we know there are many different variants going around and some of them are, are particularly worrying that we think might not be covered by by the vaccines that currently exist. We know that um, in, uh, you know, intensive pig farms, there's swine flu. We know that in intensive bird farms, there's avian flu. And it's only going to take um, a favorable mutation for that virus again to, to jump into humans, which which they've already done a number of times, but to jump into humans and be really nasty and cause um, cause a huge pandemic and kill many, many millions of people. It's absolutely possible. Uh, and even in some opinions, um, probable. So we need we need to we need to do something. We need to change our behaviour and not not intensively farm animals for for starters, because that's the source of the pandemics. It's also uh, the source of uh, antibiotic resistance, which is is another um, time bomb, I think. Um, but what we need to do um, because of what's happened with coronavirus is is react very very quickly. So when these viruses are mutating we need to be able to generate a new vaccine very quickly and we need to be able to make sure that it's going to work and that it's probably going to be safe very very quickly so even if animal tests worked and showed the efficacy of new vaccines and and were predictive of safety in in humans we simply don't have time to do those animal tests and that was shown by by what happened with the vaccines that have, have come through already. Um, what, at least one of the vaccines went into humans for the first time before animal tests. And in other cases, animal tests were done not before human trials, but alongside human trials. Now, if those animal experiments were predictive and were absolutely essential to protect clinical trials volunteers and, and humans who were going to take the vaccine, that wouldn't have happened. Those animal tests would have had to have happened before um, the vaccines went anywhere near humans. The mm. simple truth of the matter is that the methods that, that the Center for Contemporary Sciences is championing. Do Dr. Bailey, we, we need to stop. Stay through the okay. break and I'll let you finish in the next segment. Everybody okay. else, stay with us. We'll be back after this.
You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. We are now in segment two just for you of the Main Street Vegan podcast. I invite new listeners to check out our website, MainStreetVegan.net. And also, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Compliment. These are supplements that provide just what you need, even if your diet is already close to plant perfect. So made by vegans for vegans, Complement is an easy to take spray with vitamin B12, D3, and the fully formed omega-3 fatty acids. And Complement Plus gives you all that, plus zinc, iodine, selenium, magnesium, and vitamin K2. Now, these were developed by people who know their stuff, including Pamela Ferguson, a PhD, wonderful uh, plant-based Canadian dietitian, Dr. Joel Kahn, MD. So you can check it all out at lovecompliment.com. And if you use the code MainStreetVeganPlus, so that's MainStreetVegan in all caps and the plus sign, and you want to buy something, you get yourself a healthy discount. Now, I have done what I've never done before in the almost nine years of the Main Street Vegan <laughs> program, and that is kept somebody over into the next segment because I wanted so much for Dr. Bailey to get to finish his thought. So, Dr. Bailey, finish your thought on COVID and then <clears throat> give us a, a minute on the Center for Contemporary Sciences. Okay, thank you so much. I'll, I'll be as quick as I can. Um, I was basically saying uh, with, with relation to, uh, you know, new pandemics and, and COVID mutations, new forms of COVID and so on, that um, we have to move away from animal testing because animal testing wasn't an essential part of the development of the vaccines we already have. And even if the animal testing was predictive of uh, vaccine efficacy in people and safety in people, we can't do it anyway because of the urgency with which we have to develop new vaccines to keep pace with uh, the mutation of existing viruses and to, to try and develop vaccines for new pandemics. We have to use methods that are quicker and cheaper and easier and predictive of human biology. And the only way to do that is to do what we are championing at the, championing at the Center for Contemporary Sciences, to use the methods that demonstrably contributed towards the development of vaccines for COVID. The, the uh, mini organoids, the mini human organs, the, the human organ and body on a, a mini chip uh, technologies are just, just as, as two of them that I was talking about earlier. This is where the future of scientific research and success in scientific research and human benefit lies. And that's why the mission of uh, the Center of Contemporary Sciences is to, to try and expedite that sea change in science away from using animals and towards uh, human biology. We have to remember, just for a final point, is the degree of failure of relying on animal models in biomedical research. Uh, we're sti we still don't fully understand Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, many, many types of cancer. The biggest failure rates of drugs are in, in Alzheimer's and cancer, for example. I think they're 95 to 96 percent. The overall failure rate of drugs that look good in animals is over 90 percent. 
it's clear to anybody that we're doing something wrong and we need to do something better. And that something better already exists in human-specific research methods. And so when we, when we find that shift, when we achieve that shift, everyone will benefit. The 200 million animals a year used in science and the 7 billion human beings uh, on the planet who are relying on good science to understand diseases and to cure and treat them. Oh, I love that win-win. If you want to find out more, and we will put this on the show notes as well at MainStreetVegan.net, but you can go straight to ContemporarySciences.org or Contemporary Sciences on Facebook and Instagram and find out more about um, the good work of Dr. Bailey and his colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today and all the best. Thank you so much. Work. It's been a pleasure. All <laughs> Thank the best. You. Thank you. Now, my, my patient and lovely guest, um, whenever we get out of COVID, Patricia, uh, I owe you a wonderful dinner in New York <laughs> City. Patricia Maraday is co-founder of Mercatrade, Latin American Business Center, and she has extensive experience with high-tech multinational corporations, and she's taking that expertise and applying it to her work in spreading veganism. So she is a recent graduate of Main Street Vegan Academy, making her a certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator. And she is the co-founder of the delightful website, oops, vegan. which helps people discover vegan products and get support and inspiration for the journey. So coming to us today from her home in the Republic of Panama, Patricia Maraday. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you for being here. And thanks so much for your patience. I just love saying your website name, (laughs) oopsvegan.com. So how did you come up with that charming name and why? Well, uh, my journey started when I was really three years old. I mean, I've been vegetarian since I was three years old uh, when my mom just innocently showed a cow and said, well, that's where the food, your food is coming from. And it just totally traumatized me. And uh, I didn't want to eat meat anymore, you know. And my mom had this task of feeding her child, which she had no idea how to do without meat. And so she just gave me a lot of dairy product. I mean, I woke up in the morning having cereal with milk. I, I left for school with the cheese sandwich. And at night I ate something with dairy products. And I was just eating it every single day. And, uh, you know, as the years passed, I started developing a lot of um, problems, a lot of health problems, uh, really bad allergies, uh, where I was taking a lot of medication, uh, terrible asthma, couldn't really do exercise without uh, using my Ventolin pump. And I just kind of stopped and said, this is, this is not normal. I, at that point, I thought I was having, leading a healthy lifestyle. I mean, I was exercising, I wasn't eating a lot of junk food. And so why am I getting sick all the time, you know? And so I just paused and started researching. And what I found out was just so surprising to me that dairy was not good for you, that it caused so much inflammation for your health. And I I really started to uh, transition into a vegan lifestyle. But what really surprised me, despite everything that I had found, all the health benefits, all the horrible animal treatment of dairy cows and, you know, the devastating environmental impact, I really had trouble sticking to it. Even though I knew all of that, I was still going back and forth, even if I was feeling better. 
And I realized that, you know, it's not easy transitioning to the vegan lifestyle. And I can imagine how hard it, I just had to give up dairy and eggs. And I can imagine people who are meat eaters who have to give up meat, seafoods and all of that on top of dairy. And I just realized that it's not that easy. So I, I, I really took that experience with me. And for the past five years, I've been vegan. I'm, I'm vegan for the past five years. And I feel amazing. My allergies are gone. Uh, I no longer use my medication for asthma. I still go around with my asthma pump because I'm paranoid, but I haven't had the, I haven't used it. And I've just, I just feel so much better. And I really want to share my experience with people and create uh, awareness. And it, it is wonderful what you do. And, and I do recommend that everybody stop in at your website, even experienced vegans. I know that you're targeting newer vegans with all kinds of wonderful products and information, not just food, but also clothing, cosmetics, terrific articles. And yet so many people go vegan and then they go back. One study it, said 80%, which just was a heartbreaking number. So why do you think so many people give up on this? Well, it's it's really interesting because I was just totally shocked uh, when I found out these stats. I'm, I'm getting 84% of vegans uh, give up within the first year and a third of vegans and vegetarians give up within the first three months, which is huge. It's heartbreaking. And it's, it's really sad because of the vegan movement putting so much effort into creating awareness about the lifestyle. And then once people are in it, they just give up so quickly. And um, that's why I really wanted to create, I connected the dots of my life, basically using my digital marketing skills and uh, this passion, this new passion that I have that I want to, you know, create awareness for the vegan movement. And I just created oopsvegan.com where I have all this information. And the site has been up for over a year now. And so this has allowed me to really interact with the people going on the website and interact with social media, people on social media, and get like a really good sense of what their problems are. And we're seeing three main problems coming out. Uh, the first one that I'm seeing is just, it's just a lot of miscommunication out there. I mean, we live in the era of fake news and there's just so much information out there that you don't know what's real, what's not real. And, and people are just really confused. I mean, I have some uh, people who are kind of dipping their toes in veganism, trying to get information to see if they really want to go with it or not. And there's just so much confusion. A lot of people think veganism is raw veganism. So they're like, well, I'm not ready to just eat fruits and vegetables and no cooked foods. And we tell them, well, raw veganism is just one type of vegan. You know, you can totally go vegan and continue eating vegan uh, cheese or vegan veggie burgers or uh, vegan cookies. And that's not a problem at all. Uh, a lot of people are also confused about thinking that vegan is actually just whole food whole food plant-based. So that means no oil, no processed foods. And they're like, well, we can't do that. You know, we're, we don't want to give up so much. So there's a confusion about what veganism is to a lot of people. Um, a lot of people all still have the notion, unfortunately, that, uh, you know, you cannot survive without meat. They feel like they would not get enough protein, uh, enough iron, enough calcium. So there's still that, that myth and confusion out there. Uh, there's other myths about um, 
they're like, well, veganism is going to be too expensive for me because, you know, I see all these amazing influencers on Instagram using all these, you know, superfood powders and it's really expensive and I, I can't afford it. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I don't use any of the superfoods. My, my diet is actually really simple. It's like beans, lentils, a lot of things that are very inexpensive and readily available in any supermarket, you know? Um, so that's, that's not true either. So there's a lot of education and explanation that's needed. There's also some misinformation about tofu, which is, you know, a staple in vegan, uh, in a vegan diet. And people still think that so soy is bad for you. So there's like the number one is like a lot of myth and misinformation. I would think number two revolves around food. Um, there's a lot of cultural barriers. I mean, food is such an important fact, fact of, of your culture, sometimes of your religion, and it, people are really attached to their foods. And it's really hard for them to break away from those cultural barriers. And so that's something that they have problems with. Um, around food, there's also a lot of people who don't know how to cook vegan meals, and they end up doing lots of things like salads, uh, and bland food, they just don't know how to cook it. And then, you know, it's not tasty for them and they just give up and go back to their old ways. Um, and the number three is a lack of social support. And this is something that I think the vegan movement should really start concentrating a lot on and how to help vegans um, face all these, these pressures from, from their family, for example, especially from young vegans who are still at home uh, their parents or grandparents are not uh, into the movement and don't allow them or, or are discouraging them to go vegan because they don't feel that that, that will be enough food for them. Um, there's unfortunately a lot of teasing of people who are vegan because they're not eating meat. Um, I think as well for people, I think as individuals, we always, a lot of people just want to kind of blend in with everybody and so when you're vegan or vegetarian, uh, chances out you will stick out at a meal or at a restaurant or at family gatherings or at, at work gatherings. And you will stick out because, you know, you probably won't have another vegan there. And so you just you're just sticking out and people don't want to or they don't want to cause problems and things like that. And they just feel like, OK, it's just easier going back to the way it was before. So those are the three main uh, um things that we have seen uh, for people who are transitioning and give up, unfortunately. Oh, that is absolutely fascinating. Now, one of the things that you have said is that the vegan and plant-based companies themselves are actually making some mistakes. What are those? Oh, okay. So that was when I, I was talking more about, uh, we also have a digital marketing agency where we have plant-based companies. Uh, and their digital marketing. And so they, they are making a lot of, we help small and medium companies uh, in their digital marketing. And so when they are starting uh, their digital marketing, they are kind of forgetting about business practices that are basic. They have a tendency to be so, so passionate about, uh, about, you know, veganism, about sustainable living. And then I, they have a tendency to forget about basic business principles like market analysis, 
like definition of their audience, a good business plan, uh, cost analysis, financials. And sometimes a lot of these smaller companies think that just because they're plant-based, they, they will instantly sell their products. And unfortunately, it's not the case. And so when we were talking about that, I was talking about more about our digital marketing agency where we are helping uh, all these plant-based sustainable companies um, thrive on their marketing. Uh, and what's that company? What's the name of it or the website? So uh, my husband and I have been in the digital marketing space for more than 10 years and so we created a digital marketing agency specifically catering to plant-based companies, plant-based and sustainable company. It's called quinoamarketing.com. And so we've been able to help you know, companies uh, all over the world, in Sweden, in the U.S., in Spain, um, in the U.K. And it's, it's just been great to be able to align our values uh, and be able to help individual with Oops Vegan and companies uh, with quinoamarketing.com. It's just been amazing. Nice. Well, we'll put that in the show notes as well. So from what you have learned from your research, what can those of us who are vegan and would love for there to be more vegans and more vegans who stay vegan, um, what, what can we do? Any tips? Well, I think that we have to be open to imperfect vegans to take away the pressure and the judgment. I think that I, I've, when I researched, I went on to Facebook groups and things like that. And, and sometimes it just gets a little bit too much pressure. And sometimes there is judgment for, for vegans who are not 100% vegan yet because they're struggling or they're, they're just or they don't want to go 100% at it. And that's okay, you know. I think that it's really important to, to accept that, you know, imperfect vegans, we love them no matter what. And it's a step-by-step -step process. And really try as a movement, as vegans, to really support anybody no matter where they are at the stage in their vegan journey, whether they're just thinking about it, whether they're ready to just do one meal a month, that's fine too. That's a first step, whether it's just once a day or, or you know, one meal from now and then and, and just try and support them no matter what. Mm. And what would you say about the use of the word vegan? It's so interesting. I feel like when a company wants to use it, they think it's good. So I, I noticed that there's a, a Revlon hair color and they've got vegan on the box. And the truth is, I think Revlon still tests on animals. So I don't think it's really vegan as we would think vegan. I think it just means no animal ingredients. But whatever the history, the box says vegan. So obviously in their demographic research, they figured out that having that word front and center was going to sell more hair color for them. But other people, particularly vegans, I think we're so concerned about it. Oh, well, I'm not going to say vegan. I don't want to turn people off. So where do you stand on the word? Well, I think just from a digital marketing, the word, uh, and even uh, we do a lot of search engine optimization. So we look at a lot of keywords. And so vegan, obviously, is one of the keywords. And, and there was a lot of debate whether it's better to say vegan or, or plant-based. But people, there's a high, high search for the keyword vegan and veganism. I think that people, as we go, are getting more informed and more educating, educated 
and are demanding more from companies, which is amazing. And these companies are just trying to, 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 to use, reuse that word to, to sell more. I don't know the particular one about Revlon. I honestly, I have not seen that one. But obviously, the plant-based, the vegan industry is just booming. It's uh, growing at uh, so, so much. And we know that the future, um, there's going to be more and more people in this, uh, you, you know, going into this lifestyle. And it's very, very exciting. Now, I know you are very good at codifying things and, and getting <laughs> the statistics and all that. My my brain is somewhere else entirely. And so when you look at how these products are proliferating at such a steady clip, and that's wonderful, but whenever somebody does a survey about how many people are vegan or even vegetarian, both of those numbers just don't seem to budge. How can you explain that? Well, right now, the, the latest stats uh, vary between two to four percent in the U.S. I'm talking about in the U.S. Are we before, talking vegans or vegetarians? Both vegans and vegetarian. It's two to four percent because some people are uh, going between vegan and vegetarian, but but mostly for vegans and vegetarian is between two to four percent. Um, so it, it's it's definitely a, a growing population. And, and why people are, I think that a lot of people are, there's a growing number of flexitarians, of people yeah. who are saying, I, I understand what's going on with the environment. I understand, uh, I'm starting to understand what's going on with these animals that I think that I have the right to eat. But now I, I don't think because of all that's happening, uh, there's all the antibiotic resistance that's coming, that their information that they're getting. And now with all the pandemics that's uh, that's coming out with COVID, uh, we're seeing more information about how livestock is treated and how these viruses are propagating uh, in all these livestock um, places. So I think people are just being more demanding uh, from these companies, yet they're not, they're not ready to take the plunge to be 100% vegans. But uh, the, the number of flexitarians have drastically increased all over the world. And mm. I think that that's, that's interesting to see. And that's, a, um, that's definitely a population that we should be looking at as, uh, as a vegan, vegan movement. Mm. And I think that we need to be educating those people too, maybe not so much with the push of, okay, you've come this far, why don't you just come the rest of the way? But to help them be the most effective flexitarians they can be in terms of not that I don't want them to be vegan. I want everybody to be vegan yesterday. And yet I have read that some flexitarians do a little bit of what happened to you when you were a child and they eat so many more eggs and dairy products that their impact on animals and the planet is no better than it was when they were eating meat and maybe not as good, especially if, if they maybe they're, they're no longer eating beef, but they're eating a lot of eggs. And we know, you know, chickens are small and so many billions of them are, are killed. And that's an interesting thought, you know, for me as a vegan, to think about talking to a flexitarian about, wow, this is so great that you're wanting to do this. And, and, and how wonderful that you're understanding that if you, you know, maybe you're no longer having chicken on your salad, you, you want to have hummus instead of, you know, eggs or something to really, when they are eating vegetarian, to try to get them to eat vegan. Does that make sense? 
Uh, that makes total sense. And I think that the launch of new vegan product that happens, I feel just every day, I feel like there's a new product coming out, uh, is going to help these flexitarians transition even better. I mean, when I was growing up, I didn't have the vegan cheese. I didn't have the veggie burgers. I didn't have any of that. And now when you go to a supermarket, I mean, on the cheese aisle, you have vegan cheese. On the milk aisle, you have all these plant-based milk. And, and everything, every day, there seems to be a substitute for, some, for a staple that meat eaters were eating before. And the food is, and, and the products are good. I mean, I've, I've tried, I was a big cheese eater, so I'm, I'm very picky on my cheese. And the cheeses that are out there are pretty good. I mean, I'm not gonna go name brands, but some of them are, are really good and, and, and really can compete with cheese, with dairy cheese. Oh, a absolutely. I mean, and I don't mind naming brands. I mean, <laughs> my two I don't favorites. Know if I, could, so I wasn't going to. I, I like Treeline, uh, Kite Hill, and Miyoko's. Those are those are my top three. But I also know that sometimes, you know, you just want something that melts on a pizza. And, exactly. You know, and there are plenty of those as well. Definitely. I think that was one of the the hardest thing for me is to give up cheese pizza. And now, I mean, uh, different pizza places, they offer vegan pizza. I mean, that's something I never thought would have happened in my yeah, life when yeah. I was younger. So we've just got like a minute. I don't know why this show has gone so fast today. But can you, in that tiny bit of time, give us a couple of examples of some information and confusion about vegan products? That seems like something simple we could clear up. About vegan products. So uh, I think the one of the things that I see coming out is soy. I mean, people are uh, scared to touch soy products like tofu. So one of the confusion of soy is, of tofu, is that they don't know how to to cook tofu. I mean, there's the, the firm tofu, there's the soft tofu, and a lot of people don't know how to, to cook that. So I think that there should be a lot of information that we have on our website to how to cook it. Um, there's tempeh, which a lot of people don't know, and it's an amazing product that I love. Actually, I love tempeh even more than tofu. Yeah, and yeah. you have a great article on your on Oops Vegan about tempeh. And I'm so sorry to be cutting you off, but I'm looking okay. at this clock and we are going to be sent into the next uh, Unity Online Radio uh, program, which is wonderful. Okay. So anybody listening live, do stay with them. And thank you all for listening today. God bless you. Eat your veggies and some plant meat. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.